become a good friend. He is, he is helping your pastor to learn to walk again. He is one of the uh, assistants over where I get my therapy done. LaVon, stand up. Let everybody thank you for a pastor who can walk. <clears throat> LaVon has this, he's got this strange inner tension going on because he's, he's working to get me back on the basketball court, but he's scared. <laughs> LaVon played college ball, but he's, he's still scared because he knows that when I'm back on the court, I'm threatening him. He knows I'm slamming in his face as soon as he gets me up and running. So he's, he's scared. He lives with it every time I see him, but it's okay. All right, well, this morning we are... We're continuing our series on, on meeting God, and, and I want to take us to that place where you, you don't just come into a message with the thought that, you know, I've been to church so many times, I've opened the Bible so many times, I've read so many things so many times, I kind of know already. Sometimes when you step back and look at something as though you're looking at it for the first time, you really do discover some things in a fresh way. And that's what I, I trust and hope God is helping us to do. Uh, I took a little bit of a part one, part two to this message and skipped a week so I could be at youth camp last week. But this week, we're continuing looking at David's life. Who He was introducing us to the God who is love. And, and I, I want to just take a moment again to reiterate why this topic is so important and why it's so difficult. We would think this would be this, the easiest thing to talk about. God is love. And when you read scripture, you're going to find out it's, it's not quite as easy as we'd like to make it to be that God is love. And that primarily has to do with, with something about us. God's clear. It's you and I who come to him with some difficulty in receiving from him in this category. One thing I think, and I mentioned this before, is we put such an emphasis on being loved if I could say, hey, everybody throw out at me the number one addiction, number one obsessive, compulsive behavior pattern for humanity, it would have to be the desire to be loved, right? I mean, if I brought some old rock songs out, right? <clears throat> you, you might as well face it, you're addicted to love, you know. I can't get enough of your love. Love is the answer. What the world needs now is, <clears throat> see, you guys have been well-programmed. Looking for love in all the wrong places, right? The Beatles, all you need is love, right? I mean, so love is this cure-all, end-all. It's the, it's the number one thing that if we don't, we don't know a lot of folks here this morning, you can bet you have that in common. You're looking for love. They're looking for love. At points in your life, you could probably say you were desperate for love. They have been desperate for love. Maybe they're desperate for love right now. And you're going to find, if you look back over your life, no matter what categories you have been able to experience love in in your life, uh, you're not fixed, right? If you've experienced the love of a parent, right, some folks didn't have great parents, some folks had great parents, but if you've experienced the love of a parent, that didn't fix you, did it, right? You didn't get raised and, you know, leave home at 20 or 25 or whatever and just say, you know what, hey, guys, everybody just back off. No, I'm good. I'm good. No one needs to love me. I was loved growing up. And if I got any more love going on, I'm going to throw up. I'm good. I'm good. All right, all of us leave home launched out looking for love. We may have great friends growing up that loved us. Man, they were there for us and hanging with us and putting up with our junk. And 
but yet we're still looking for love. You get married, found a spouse who decides that she will, she will marry us to the exclusion of all others. I mean, what, what the ultimate statement of love that is to us, right? I, I'm choosing you instead of all others, and I'm committing to you for life. And yet you're still not done wanting to be loved, are you? You have children. You know, if you don't get this thing right, you start milking them for every bit of love you can get out of them. You twist them into the wind and you get all mad at them and bent out of shape because you just can't get them to love you the way you want to. We're obsessed with being loved, aren't we? Now, might it be that God made us that way? Might it be that God wants us to experience love and we crave it and long for it because God made us that way? but he made us that way so that we would look to him to be loved and to experience that love. And I think the problem we have, and what I hope today's message again will help us to do, is for us to look to receive love from God the way in which God gives love and not just the way in which we have narrowed love to the way in which we prefer to get it. Right? If you've raised kids... Children don't have a great capacity for uh, appreciating parental love, especially when they're little, right? Now, I can remember saying these words myself. Uh, I don't remember. My kids haven't said this too much, or maybe my wife will correct me afterwards if I've forgotten. But when you discipline your children, you know, I can remember turning this on my parents. If my parents disciplined me, I would turn it on them. You don't love me. Right? Did you ever do that to your parents? You know, when they just really came down really hard on you for something that you did, and you just, you don't love me. And you just manipulated them with that. But quite honestly, when you're a kid, getting spanked, being deprived of something, having your future plans messed up by your parents, that doesn't feel like love, does it? It's like, I mean, you've longed for this thing all your, all your life as far as you can remember. You just want to have this thing. You've set all your hope in it. And then you do something really, really bad right on the verge of getting it. And your parents turn around and say, you're not getting that, blah, blah, blah. You know. What? I mean, you've longed for this thing. You feel like, I, if, if I had money, I'd hire an attorney. Sue you. You can't do that to me. You don't love me. Right? We don't appreciate a certain aspect of love. Now, that's parenting on a human level. What do you do when you come to God? And you and I come to God with a, with a very limited amount of information and a limited brain to take in more information and really conceive of some things. And God comes to our lives, and he follows us through these events in our life and seasons in our life. But he comes to our life in every moment with infinite wisdom and eternal perspective. And then he loves us with that equipment. And you and I look back at God with temporary minds and very limited capacity. God can take in an infinite amount of data. You know, you and I are blown away by a megabyte. You know, it's kind of like, wow, a megabyte. Oh, with my memory lately, I'm, I'm ready to go back to, you know, a kilobyte and be impressed. God is coming with infinite information and wisdom into our life. And then he turns around and he does stuff in our life. And he's looking at eternity. And you and I, how many of y'all are are really looking at eternity when things go on in your life? Are you just looking at temporary, how's this going to work out by Friday? You know, what does this mean for my life at the end of the month? Can I pay the bill? 
And so we just look at our life in this very small way, and then we try to make God love us with our temporary mindsets and our limited wisdom, and we try and fit God's love into that, rather than backing off and saying, you know what, God is loving us in ways that are so much bigger than, remember, God is kadosh, he's other than us. And so, you know, I had a conversation with a lady last night who was telling me her story about cancer and what she's walked through. Um, you know, getting that word hung on you. I don't know anybody who turns around and says, you know what, I'm really feeling the love of God right now. I just was diagnosed with cancer. I'm, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling the love of God. But if you belong to God, he hasn't stopped loving you when you get cancer. Right, if you ever want to be blown away by the limited ability that we have to take in the goodness of God with our very limited perspective, you talk to a couple like Judy and Donnie Bourgeois who lost their son. And yet, step back from that situation and, and see the goodness of God invading their life. If you talk to Donnie and Judy, you'll walk away scratching your head. See, because our mindset is temporary, it is limited, and, and, and we stop and we think, if I lost one of my children, how could I possibly in that moment think that's good and that God loves me in that event? But might it be that there's aspects of the infinite wisdom of God and the eternal dynamic of God that he can love you and that can be an aspect of his love in your life. See, God's not like us. So when he goes to love us, the challenge for us is to, to tune into what God's broadcasting and not to stand stubbornly with our very small definition and say, God, if you don't do this this way, you don't love me. Now, there may be some of us here this morning walking around wondering whether God loves us. And the reason may be because we're trying to drink from the love of God through that little straw I mentioned. And the love of God is vast and enormous. Um, I know I stirred up some issues with uh, questioning the unconditionality of God's love. Did that tweak some of you guys? That's one of those statements you make in order to tweak people. But it makes you start to think, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to resist getting off into this too far, but I, I just want to qualify and say, when we think about God's love coming to us, God, God's love, as I said, it's unearned, it's unmerited, it's undeserved, it's unexpected. But if you're a Christian, the unconditionality of it, it kind of, it, it begins to have problems in Scripture. Because when you meet God, you meet this thundering, holy, perfect, righteous God. And immediately you find that people are being pushed away from him in certain ways. And so you find that there is some kind of conditionality to God. No one drifts into the presence of God. No one does. Because they fall short of the condition that must be met. This is primarily a gathering of Christians who have embraced an aspect of truth that has made you and I exempt from the condition, if you will. It's put us outside the condition. 
It's put us in a different category. But listen, the condition for you to hang out with God, there was a condition. It was perfection. You had to be perfect to be around God. Anybody here going to meet that? Well, then how does any of us get to hang out with God? Well, because the condition got met by someone else, not by me and not by you. See, when God decided to pour his love on us, it's not as though he did away with the conditions. Right? That, that's a faulty view of God. And once you create a God who can do away with conditions, now you got a God that, well, why doesn't he just accept this religion and that person and that belief and that pattern? No, no, God doesn't accept those things because there is a condition of his perfection that must be met. What makes the people of God different is that the people of God have embraced Christ who met those conditions perfectly so that you and I don't have to. That doesn't mean there's no conditions. It just means I don't have to meet them because somebody else met them on my behalf. Now, let me just make a point of this because... When, when, if you're a Christian and you start drawing near to God and you start experiencing the, the love of God in your life, does that mean you cannot experience the disappointment of God in your life? I mean, I've seen people get twisted in the wind by this stuff. They think, well, if God loves me and he loves me unconditionally, well, then uh, he could never be disappointed. Well, this is, this is where God has a uniqueness. God loves you. But God has an agenda for you. Right? God shows up in your life loving you but with an agenda. Remember, when God created man, he created man to be the image of God. That was an agenda. You're created with a purpose. So we fell from that purpose, and now God is restoring us to that purpose. And every day of your life, God is cutting off edges, shaving things, nudging you, molding you. So... This is the reality of your life. You hear the message that God loves me, but at the same time you feel squeezed by God, don't you? You feel nudged by God. You feel like God's moving you over there. And when you get sloppy, well, God loves me unconditionally, and then the next thought is, so then why doesn't he just leave me alone? Why does he just leave me the way I am? If God just loves me, he just accepts me unconditionally. See, that's, see, that word gets sloppy, doesn't it? It gets kind of messy because in your life, you both are feeling the love of God in your life, but you're also feeling the shaping influence of God, that God is, God is parenting you. God is correcting you. God is changing you. And when you don't change into the image of God, there is a sense of disappointment because God had intended for you to look this way, and he's working in that way. So, yeah, you can experience some kind of a disappointment dynamic with God. Here's where you need to be careful. That you don't take any of those things and walk into the category of, am I right with God? Am I accepted by God? Am I justified in the presence of God? That doesn't have anything to do with your day-to-day activity. That has everything to do with what I said earlier. Someone met the condition of God on your behalf, and it's done. It's settled. That will never be up for grabs again. You will never, ever be able to or called on to do anything that will get God to be on your side. 
you can't accomplish that, and you're not called to. But being loved by God doesn't mean that you're not going to feel nudged by God. You're not going to feel shaped by God. You're not going to feel like God has an agenda when he's loving you, because he does have an agenda. And so if you think unconditionality means God just, he's fine with you just like you are. No, that's where that word gets kind of cumbersome. It's not a good word in some ways. But let me, let me go back to this quickly. At the end of the day, God wants you not just to know that he loves you, but he wants you to understand it and be able to receive it. Now that Paul put that prayer in Ephesians, I'll pick it up in verse 17 there in your outline, chapter 3. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. God wants you to know his love. He wants you to experience his love. Just want that to be a concept that you don't have any contact with. God wants you to know he loves you. Now, I made a comment in quoting somebody, and I want to go back to this quote. D.A. Carson highlighted an aspect of a comment that was made by Marsha Whitten in her book. And I want to be careful that we don't, when we say, you know, God loves us. God has set his love on us. God loves us with a determined love. There's this aspect that we almost turn God into this robot, that God has chosen to love us. Why does God love us? He loves us because he chooses to love us. And it sounds very cold and almost dispassionate, almost as though God is above loving us with an affectionate love. Now, there's some of us in here that are very logical, and we're cool with that, you know. We're just real logical. Nobody ever needs to get ooey-gooey with us. Just tell me you love me. I'm good. Write it down, bold print, and I'm good. And there's others of us that don't write it down, bold print. Ooey-gooey me, you know. Make me feel how you feel about me, right. And so some of us want God to kind of be like that. Now, listen, we don't want to manipulate God, but at the same time, we don't want to overlook what the Bible says about God's love either, right? We'll go back to this thought from two weeks ago. Marsha Witten says, There is a powerful tendency to present God through characterizations of his inner states with an emphasis on his emotions, which closely resemble those of human beings. With such sentimentalizing of God multiplying in Protestant churches, it does not take much to see how difficult maintaining a biblical doctrine of the love of God can be. Now, that sounds like we're inviting cold, sterile understanding of the love of God. A.W. Tozer says, The Lord takes peculiar pleasure in his saints. Many think of God as far removed, gloomy, and mightily displeased with everything, gazing down in a mood of fixed apathy upon a world in which he has long ago lost interest. But this is to think erroneously. True, God hates sin and can never look with pleasure upon iniquity. However, Christ in his atonement has removed the bar to the divine fellowship. Now in Christ, all believing souls are objects of God's delight. Now, do, you ever, do you ever think that that's how God's love comes to you? In the, in the form of delight, that God has affection for you. God delights in. He's not just a 
robotic programmed computer that he chose to set his love on you. He will do right by you. You can depend upon that. Or does God actually on the hook a little bit? Is his affection sticking out a bit? Right, how many of us know that, that the wrath of God is a reference to the righteous anger of God? Is, is, that, is that passionate? Do you think that's lacking passion? Right, now, if we've got that on this side of the ledger, do we have something like that on the other side? That the love of God is filled with intense passion in God and not just this cold, morbid thing. Look, look in Hosea real quick. Hosea. Chapter 11 gives us this imagery of the affection of God. I think I put in your outline Zephaniah as well. Zephaniah 3 verse 17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Do you ever picture God as being glad? Picture God with a smile on his face, eager, passionate toward us. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Right, now listen, I know we do singing. Do y'all ever imagine that God does singing? Right, the, the, the language in this, in this particular verse is a little bit hard to translate. It's almost depicting God as spinning around with exuberant joy singing. Right? And that's just not dignified, is it? I mean, we have this view of God that he's got a long beard. He doesn't move much. He sits on a throne. It's a big stone throne, cold. And he's directing his love towards his creation. And peals of thunder are behind him like we read. And there's this awesome, you know, we don't ever depict him as getting up off the throne and dancing around like a Cajun dancer. Right? Woo! I'm dancing on one leg. It's okay. Uh, Woo! God, just exuberant, full of love, excited, rejoicing, and I'm here to do you good kind of a thing. That's, we don't picture God that way, do we? And so we can't begin to taste of the disappointment of God when that love gets short-circuited, doesn't get received, doesn't get looked to in our lives. Isaiah said something similar. He says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. What's a bridegroom and a bride look like? I mean, now I appreciate Witten's comment that there is a sentimentalizing of God that that we need to be careful about. But the Bible does say this. You watch a bridegroom and a bride and there's there's some ooing and cooing and desiring going on there, Right? There's delight. This is a delightful thing that this this couple's entering into. And God says, God's going to rejoice over you that way. All right, so we have marital pictures here. We just have an exalting, exuberant God. Look at this parental dynamic from Hosea, chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the bales and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I mean, this is a parental picture. I mean, can you, can you get the, the dad holding the hand, walking down the sidewalk, you know, taking two hands? Come on, come on, come on. You can do it, you can do it. This, this is the imagery God's borrowing to say, this is how my affection is towards my own. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. 
I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. Look over in verse 8. Can you just hear the emotion, if you will, here? How can I give you up, O Ephraim? And listen, if you don't read that verse that way, this is not a computer readout, right? This is not like one of the seraphim up there. We're using one of their extra wings to, to pull the ticker tape off of God's spout out computer readout. How can I give up Ephraim? But this is the passion of God. God's feeling a sense of affection for his people, but there's a frustration in the sense of how they will not receive it. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. In this passage, you get an awareness. Now, there are times when God does come in wrath, but you get a sense of the tension in God, that there is an affection in God for his people. It's not a cold exchange between us and God. There is an endearing, parental, loving, bridegroom, couple type of an affection in God that's passionate for you. So when the Bible says God loves you, it is all the unconditionality, if you will, that we've talked about, but it is an affectionate love as well. Now let's go back to David for a moment. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now remember, this is just a tip for reading the Bible here. Remember, that this, is, this is a book about God. Always be careful you don't turn it into something secondary. Right? When we, so when we go to David's life, David's life was intended to sort of be the canvas upon which God painted himself. Right? We're, we're supposed to be the image of God. So there's, there's realities of God in David's life. What you don't want to do to David is you don't want to write motivational books from David's life and leave this out and end up with things that sound like how to go from shepherd to king in four easy lessons. You, know, you don't want to write books about how to slay your giants and it's all about how you can become or do and we're going to take some lessons from this little shepherd boy who took on a big giant and knocked him out with a stone and you can do that too. And there's no God in that anywhere. This is a book about God. Every page is about God. Every character is being told something and revealed through their lives something about God. So when we come to David's life, what do we, what do we discover about God? Well, 2 Samuel 7, we read this passage. I won't read the whole thing. But let me just capture a couple of things that are here. This is where we're borrowing David's vocabulary to discover how did David's life reveal the love of God to us. We said a couple of weeks ago that God's love was undeserved, unexpected, and unearned. I want to explore today God's love brought a favored sense and a fruitful experience into David's life, but not an easy life. Corrective and chastening were words that David would have used to describe the love of God. He was corrected and chastened by God, but not rejected by him. 
steadfast and covenant-keeping and not changing would have been David's experience of the love of God. So let me see if I can, I'm going to move through these as quickly as I can here. 2 Samuel 7, verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, right? When the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. If you read through David's story, you can look over, it gets picked up again in chapter 8. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methagamah out of the hand of the Philistines. And it goes on and it begins to list. David beat this group and David beat this king and then David beat this guy. So David is living this life where he's a military king and he's defeating one nation after another because the Lord is at work giving favor to David. This is not a story about David must have been some military genius, man. I mean, this is a guy almost never could lose. One battle after another. He won and he won and he won and he won. And then when you read the Bible, though, you find out because God gave him victories. Now, there's a little bit of an awkwardness in this, okay, but I want to trace it out because David's receiving favor. God has set his love on David in a unique way. And he is receiving favor from God as a result. Now, he's not the first one that God did that with. Remember, God did this with Abraham. Genesis 12. I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Right, here's God determining, Abraham, I'm going to make your life favored and blessed. I'm going to give you children. I'm going to make your name great. People are not going to forget who you are. You're going to be a source of blessing all over the earth. Oh, and by the way, anybody crosses you, they're going to have to deal with me. Right, so that's what God says to Abraham. Unusual favor comes to his life and fruitfulness as well. Joshua 21, years later, God has chosen his people through Abraham, eventually the nation of Israel, Joshua 21, and the Lord gave them, speaking of the nation of Israel, he gave them rest on every side just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. All right, so you have Abraham. Later on, you have the nation of Israel. And then within the nation of Israel, you have King David. And they're all receiving the same treatment. God is choosing to pour out favor upon his people. Now, here's where the love of God goes back into that category of the difficult doctrine of the love of God. Right? If, if I was to write a sub book to Mr. Carson's book, I think I'd have to write it from these passages and say the uncomfortable inequality of the love of God. Because right? you read these verses and you write, hey, well, that's so great. This is only great if you're Israel. What if you're one of the nations who live on the borders of Israel? You, you did read this, right? God gave them into their hands. God gave David peace by serving up his enemies to him. So what if you're not one of God's chosen? See, this is, do you understand where the, the, the love of God gets a little entangled in the Bible? 
Because we want to stand up and say, oh, God loves everybody exactly the same. And listen, I know that makes sense to us. It simplifies things. But do you get that from these verses? When Abraham gets blessed the way Abraham gets blessed, what happened to Abraham's next door neighbor? Oh, I'm sorry. He, forgot, he got to be a nobody for the rest of his life. He didn't get the blessings that Abraham got. The nation of Israel, what happened to all the other nations? They didn't get what Israel got. King David, what about all the other kings in the land? There's a passage here, and I'm not going to get time to get to all this, but if you, if you read through Psalm 18, I believe it's in there. The enemies of God actually prayed to God, and God still delivered them into David's hands. So where does this steal come from? Now, listen, I know that this is an uncomfortable dynamic, but, you know, if you don't see this, here's what you're not going to see. You won't reach for and expect the love of God in your life to look like favor in your life because you've got this equality thing happen. That, that God's got to be to you no more than what he can be to somebody else and no more than what he can be to that person over there. And look at what happened to them, and they were this way. And why, why would this happen to me any differently? Well, because God has chosen to put his favor on your life. Right, you ever, ever watch the Miracle Grow commercials? Right, you got the little colorful little plants, and you got the ones that get watered with Miracle Grow. Right? And these kind of, they do their best, and they strain, and they struggle over time, and, you know. Twelve little buds come out, and four of them turn to flowers. And this one over here is like, pfft. what was the difference? The miracle grow. This one got treated differently than this one. Now, I know, I know you want to say this. If I'm living in this flower pot, looking at that flower pot, you know what word I want to use? That's not fair. But when we think about the love of God, don't we just think of that God's love is fair. He treats everybody the same. Well, there is a nation. There's a guy named Abraham, and there's a nation, and there's a king, and there's people sitting in this room today that are getting miracle grow poured on them because God wants to do something in your life uniquely to express his love to you. And if you don't have a category for that and you're facing issues in your life, you just don't go there, do you? You can't figure out why if you don't do this and then this and then this, that can't turn out a certain way. Now, do you realize Abraham didn't do it right? Israel didn't do it right. Prolifically didn't do it right. David, as we saw a couple weeks ago, didn't do it right. And God still poured miracle grow all over them. Why? Well, because God chose to lavish his grace and his love on his people. Do you, have, do you have a category for that? That you don't have to wind God up by your good activity before he'll do something amazing and blow you away? That he can just choose to have favor on you because of a reason in him that you didn't provide? But I've been so irresponsible and we're in this financial condition because of this and, and our relationship is terrible because I've done this and that, and that one's done that. And almost as though God's handcuffed. Well, listen, if you belong to him, there's this weird little trumping dynamic that God can at any moment decide to show up in your world and turn that upside down because he just wants to pour his love on you. And if you're Abraham, Israel, David, or the lineage of David who believe in the person of Jesus Christ, you're in that category, right? When you look in Ephesians chapter 2, 
right, a verse that starts out not sounding real great. Verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Walked means actively pursuing, eagerly engaged, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Just think about as nasty and selfish as a bunch of passions that apply to you as you can. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Right? That's, that's us. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Do you remember that verse in Deuteronomy chapter 7? God chose Israel not because they were the greatest or most commendable of all. They were the least. But God loved Israel because he loved Israel. That's the reasoning in God. So then why does he love you? Well, because he's just rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Now hold on for this next verse. Because this, this says that you were in this hostile, terrible condition providing no motivation to God. You love the world. You loved sin. You were passionate about pursuing it. And then God, because he was overwhelmingly rich in his love, came to you, saved you by grace, and stuck you on a shelf, turned his face towards you for this reason, verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Right, I mean, can you just take all that in real quick there? Amidst all this hostility and bad vibe between us and God, all of our failure, all of our sin, the mercy of God inside God, the motivation of love inside God reaches into our world and he grabs us and he doesn't just say, listen, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to overlook your resume and, and you, you can come into my kingdom and there's a section way over there. I don't really want to see you. But if you just hang out over there, you at least get to eat from the garbage cans. Go ahead. Now, isn't that what the son thought when he was going to come home, the prodigal? And he got surprised, didn't he? He got surprised by an undignified God who got up, danced around in circles, ran down the driveway, threw his loving arms around his son, probably full of affection, shedding tears, and then say, bless this boy. Do whatever you guys can do to bless my son. You do realize that that's a story about God. We make it about the son. It's a story about God. And so God comes and rescues you and I from the, the pig poop. And, and, and we're thinking, hey, the best I can expect, based on my resume, is, is to eat from the garbage cans in the kingdom of heaven. And God says, no, 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 that's not why I set my love and affection on you. I did it so that for ages to come, I can enjoy lavishing my kindness on you over and over and over again in your life. That's what God had in mind. So if, you know, if you're in, in a crack, your life hadn't motivated God sufficiently to do something in your life, uh, do you see all these examples? Nobody provided motivation for God. None of them did. Abraham was an idol worshiper. Israel was a future idol worshiper. David 
was a murderer and an adulterer. You understand, nobody brings a good resume. And yet God says, that's not going to stop me. I'm going to love you in a way that's going to blow your mind. I'm going to put you in a place to where I'm going to be obsessed, if you can say that about God, with blessing you and lavishing my kindness upon you for the rest of eternity. That's the love of God. Favor and fruitfulness into our lives. Now, now, Now let me say this from David's life and from our experience as well. Favor and fruitfulness, but not ease. Right? As soon as life becomes hard, all of a sudden we think, well, then God doesn't love me because my life isn't favorable. Right? Don't you go there? Right? Remember, when we do this, we're all spiritually immature. We're like the little kid who got spanked and got their toy taken away, and they thought they were going to get that for Christmas, and now they're not. And we turn around and we say, you don't love me. Right? That's what we're doing. Well, look here, Psalm 18. Listen to, listen to what David says here. All right, I know I'm, I'm not going to make it all the way through this message. So, boy, this, sometimes when I sit down to study, God doesn't open a slow drip IV. It's more like a big giant bucket from heaven. And a couple of weeks ago, I thought this was going to be one message. I already divided it into two, and now it feels like I'm going to have to divide it into three. So, forgive me. Psalm 18. This may be the only thing we get through. Now, here is is David. Here's the very same man. Remember, God has made this amazing covenant with David. I'm going to bless you. Just like he said to Abraham, I'm going to make your house great. Your name is going to be remembered. Kings are going to come from you. I make a covenant with your household that I will never break. So God has all these promises given to David to do good to him. And favor comes and he defeats all of his enemies. But David's life was not an easy life. David's life sounded and felt a lot like ours probably sounds and feels. Listen to Psalm 18. All right, you read the little caption there, a Psalm of David the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Here's what he said. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. Some translations say terrified me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. 
And he goes back and talking about God's response. Now, go back to verse 16, and we're going to go back into David's experience. This is the life he's experiencing as he's walking out being God's covenant man. Verse 16. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. I was drowning. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me. Right? You, you got any of those in your life? Right? When, when, when people start hating you, do you question the love of God? Do you feel like, you know, I'm, the love of God's not present. God is not actively loving me. Uh, there, there's something wrong here. People are hating you. You're falling off one list after another. Conflict is arising in one category after another. For they were too mighty for me. Right? So he's being hated by enemies, so there are enemies in his life. So you can be loved by God and have enemies in your life. Enemies who hate you. They're out to take you down. They're working behind the scenes. They're stabbing you in the back. They're setting things up. They're lying about you. Your reputation's being torn down. All the while, God loves you. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Right, now, now, we love that part. God delighted in me. But where was God when all the other stuff was being written and said? And experienced. Where was God when he was distressed, when he was terrified, when he was counting the people who hated him, when they were working behind the scenes to take his life and he was running for his life in fear? Was God not delighting in him then? Did God not love him then? And I think we all know the answer, right? But, but we don't feel that way. We don't feel like God loves us when we feel distressed, terrified, outnumbered, in waters over our head, don't know how this is going to get fixed, in that moment, we feel like God is on vacation. God is nowhere to be found. God is not faithful. God doesn't. Does God love us? Isn't that how you feel? Now, if you look later on, at the end of this passage in verse 49, For this, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to us or to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. See, when, when David recounts and sums up the experience of his life, the steadfast love of God never departed from him. He was never outside of the steadfast love of God. Matt, Matt as, you, as you come up here, Matt, um, listen, do, do you have a category for that in your life? You know, if I'm going to do a bumper sticker, you can pick it up on the way out today. God loves you, 
and life is hard. Do those two thoughts go together for us? Or do we have this sort of childish approach to God that, well, no, no, if God loved me, I'd, I'd never be corrected, I'd never have difficulty, that everything would be easy, I wouldn't be called upon to do anything or to withstand anything or face anything difficult. Listen, God loves you with an agenda. God's love is not about turning his people into a bunch of spoiled little brats. God's doing something in our lives. And sometimes God's doing in our lives means difficulty, distress, being terrified, feeling like we're in over our heads, is exactly where an infinitely wise, eternally minded, loving God puts us. It's exactly where he puts us. And it's the most loving thing he can do. Because, right, remember, these momentary light afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Listen, I mean, you guys know this as parents, right? We are tempted on a daily basis to just forget about the future and give them whatever they want right now, right? They become more pleasant instantly. They're on your side you know, they're not pouting. They're not withdrawing their affection from you. They're not arguing with you. You got them, right? You wanted candy, you got candy. You want that, you can have it. You don't want to get a job, you don't have to get a job. You can just live here forever. <laughs> Sleep in late. No, no, it's all right. I know. Right, well, here's the alternative to that is go nudge them. Wake them up in the morning, and what do they do? Why don't you wake me up? Right? Well, because you got a future. And I love you, so get your butt up and learn to work so you can pay your own bills and eat. Right? I mean, it's just love on your part, right? Now, why is it when God reaches into our world and does that? Because he knows the future and he wants to prepare for us an eternal weight of glory. And he puts us in a situation where we're distressed terrified, in over our heads, people are hating us, and they're too mighty for us, and we stop and go, does God really love me? Right, and you understand, we're doing that because we drink out of this little bitty straw. Little bitty straw. No, well, no, that can't be, because if God loved me, everything would be easy, everything would be turning up roses in my life. No. Might it be that you are experiencing the love of God in the midst of all that difficulty in your life. It's the most loving thing this infinite, wise, eternally minded God could look at your life and see where you are and say, you know, I know the plans I have for you. And now please remember this. If you're a Christian, you are in the category of being in the favor of God. That's where you live. And you can't escape it. I wish I had more time. We'll get to the other stuff. You're in this place. And remember what God did. He didn't just save you and give you cheap seats. He saved you and he set you down in a place like he's obsessed with you. And he's looking through your life and he's figuring out, how can I lavish kindness on you? my child right here. How can I do that? How can I pour out mercy 
how can I make my love known to this child? Now, when God does that, he doesn't borrow our immature mindset and then figure out how to do it. He uses his vast wisdom and eternally minded thoughts. And then he visits us with his love. So it could be this morning. You're being loved in an unbelievable way by this perfect God. He he doesn't know how to love you poorly. He only loves perfectly. And those issues are an aspect of love. In the same psalm, David will conclude by talking about the steadfast love of God. God's love never departed from David, even when things were not easy. Let's stand up together. Lord, no matter who we are here this morning, we walked into this building craving and addicted to love. And yet, Lord, sometimes it feels like experiencing and receiving that love is so far from us. It's so not what we're feeling. Yet, yet, when we read your word, we find out that we are in the category with Abraham and with Israel and with David and with the saints of the New Testament. That you have set your love on us and that love will never fail and it never takes a day off. But yet, Lord, we feel unloved. How can that be? Lord, I pray that your word has brought us insight to put down our little bitty straw and get a bigger one. To look to the hand of our infinitely wise, eternally minded God who when he goes to love us, he is not like a man. He is not limited He's not lacking foresight. He's not limited in what he knows about us and how it will affect us. Lord, you are Kadash in your love. You are other than us. So Lord, today, all of your people that are here this morning are loved by you. Oh Lord, if my heart longs for love, love is available this morning. God, what my heart cries out for, my children can never give to me sufficiently. My wife can't do it. My friends can't do it. My parents can never do it. But Lord, you have made my heart to want to be loved by you. So Lord, this morning, would you broaden our understanding of the love of God? Would you make us like David who could look and reflect on moments where we are terrified and distressed and in over our heads, wondering why everybody's at odds with us, and yet at the same time cling 
and hold to the fact that I am a child of God's favor and he steadfastly loves me and that has not changed today nor can it change tomorrow. Oh God, help us drink deeply of your love. Listen, if you're here this morning, I want God just to zero in on you. We're going to sing and close in just a moment. But if you're here this morning and you've been wrestling with the question of whether or not God loves you because your life is hard. All right. Learning truth is one thing. Getting in agreement with some is another. So I'm not asking you to do anything except confess to God whether or not what we just studied in Scripture is true. That's all I'm wa- I just want you to create a new category for your life. Can you right now, no matter what you're facing, no matter how hard it's been, no matter how disappointing, gut-wrenching, terrifying it's been, can you right now turn to God and say, okay, God, based on your word, I know you love me. I know you love me. Your love has not failed. Lord, I was wrong to think you had given up on me or or removed from me. God, your love has not failed. You are in these things. In your wisdom, you are in these things for my good. You are preparing for me an eternal weight of glory. You are at work. You have set me apart as an object of your kindness and love and you will never fail. you spoke those words of Ephraim how how can I give up Ephraim you love me that way Lord you love me and you rejoice to do good to me you are in in the midst with me to quiet me with your love and you're rejoicing over me because you love me you are running down the driveway to greet me to throw your arms around me because you have longed for me to receive your love. God, this morning, break into our lives in categories where we have bolted and locked the doors to you. And we have concluded you do not love us and you could not love us because of this. Lord, let us put the key in, open the door, and welcome your love in those places in Jesus name